If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Hello, everyone. Happy Friday. I'm Kim Hakem, your host. If this is your first time tuning into the show, welcome to another episode of And Security for All. And of course, welcome back to our regular listeners. Well, it's officially spring. I hope someone out there is enjoying some spring weather here in the Midwest. It is a chilly 53, and I think that is actually our high for the day and the weekend. So anyway, as many of you know, I am also the CEO of FutureCon Events. We put on cybersecurity conferences all over North America. We are excited that we are heading out to the Baltimore DC next week. Um, for another live event. And then the week after we're heading to Detroit, all of our events right now are being run in a hybrid mode. So not only do we get to see everyone out there in person, we still can stay connected with all of our virtual viewers and all those people that are still not comfortable coming out in person. So please go check out FutureCon events and there's a good chance that we're probably coming to a city near you. So today we're going to continue talking about nation state attacks and what's going on in Russia and why haven't we seen more cyber attacks since everything has been happening with Ukraine and Russia. At least we're not hearing about them, but um, what might we expect in the future? How um, do we prepare for any sort of attack on our infrastructure when it comes to power, water? How do we know our money is gonna be secure? How do companies ramp up their security? And how do we actually as individuals ensure our own cybersecurity? Very excited for my guest today. We're going to be discussing all of these topics. He was recently, a couple of days ago, he's been on the news all over the place, but I caught him on the news talking about this very topic. Morgan Wright, he's the Sentinel One Chief Security Advisor, and he's also a cyber terrorism, cyber crime analyst for Fox Business Network and many other national news outlets. He's been a big supporter of FutureCon, and we are happy to have our friend back on the show today. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Yeah, always a great time to be on, Kim. This is these are uh, these are exciting times for a variety of reasons. But uh, I just want to say something right out the front. Um, I just yeah, this is these are tough times too because this is a, a tremendous humanitarian tragedy. No matter what I say here, it's nothing is ever said to make light of anything that's going on there, but there's some interesting observations we're going to have because of what's going on in Russia. So this is for the Ukrainian people out there and hopefully to get, have them stay strong and be able to uh, respond to all of this. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I usually throw that in. It's, you know, what are we now? Five, five weeks into this? Are yeah, a little over a month weeks? now. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we can't forget about them, you know, and I think about it every day. What 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 would we do if it was us? If we had to all of a sudden pack up, head to Canada, leave everything, what would you take? What would you do? What a crisis. How sad. So, um, yeah, our hearts do go out to all the Ukrainians and for their safety. And hopefully they're finding, you know, they're finding a, a place to stay and live as simple as that. So. Right. 
Well, and this is gonna this is gonna highlight some of the stuff we're gonna talk about because if you look at what creates these humanitarian crises and especially in war zones, there's basically two things that are very important for a country. That's power and that's water. If you want to bring a nation to its knees, you go after two things. Power and water. Power takes different forms. It can take the form of electricity flowing to homes. It can take uh, the form of gas. It can take the form of oil, whatever it is. So if you want to bring a nation to its knees, you go after those two things. And those are the two things, as we talk, Kim, that concern me about what's at risk here in the United States, uh, what's at risk around the world. But there are some things to counterbalance that as we talk. So um, there'll be some issues around NATO. Um, I've got a couple theories about why I think Russia has not used some of their probably uh, bigger cyber weapons in Ukraine. And what, you know, I kind of, I wrote an article for the Daily Mail, uh, came out about three weeks ago, and I talked about this is the beginning of a future Cold War in Russia, and this Cold War will be fought primarily in cyberspace. You know, I was telling you pre-show that we were out in Los Angeles doing an event the day that this happened, and I stayed out in L.A. and had the news on the whole weekend, and it was interesting because there was, um, you know, lots of speculation about what was going to happen with cyber attacks. And there was even one that said there's a big one out there. So I was waiting and waiting to see what it was, never heard of anything. Why are we not? What do you think is happening and why are we not seeing this um, right out of the gate cyber attacks that we know of? happening that we know of. well there's a couple reasons here's the first one of the first things is recently russia just launched their hypersonic missile it's it goes 10 times the speed of sound it's obviously something very difficult to defend against we knew they were building something we weren't sure what but once a weapon system like that is out there we can start gathering intelligence on it we can start developing countermeasures we can start uh, directing for targeting officers at the cia and the nsa they will start targeting things to collect intelligence on so we can make estimates about but from flash to bang, from the minute we see it till the minute we get countermeasures, it's a very long time. One of the reasons I don't think we're seeing the big tools unleashed in Ukraine is a couple things, uh, probably three things. Number one is Russia and Putin are, the war plan is not going according to what they thought it would. I mean, there's an old maxim of war. I think it was a Prussian general uh, said, your battle plan never survives initial contact with the enemy, but it is going nowhere near to plan. So I don't think they were able to use it. Now, they did use what's called IPB intelligent preparation, intelligence preparation of the battlefield. So before this, we started seeing signs that something was happening. We started seeing denial of service attacks. Um, our team at Sentinel-1, our, our Sentinel Labs, we actually discovered a new wiper malware, uh, and actually CISA put out an alert on that, crediting the Sentinel-1 lab, uh, the Sentinel Lab folks. They did a great job. As this was going on, it was going in and wiping out the operating system. So you see this kind of setting, prep, preparing the battlefield. So, but once that, it, but see the difference is once that software was out there, it was able to be collected. Now, Ukraine has joined the uh, NATO Cyber Defense Center of Excellence over in Estonia. They are now what's called a cooperating partner. They're not a member of NATO, but they are a cooperating partner. So that means all of that malware, all of that software gets pulled into the NATO uh, Cyber Defense Center of Excellence and it gets analyzed. And so before that's able to go, let's say, into other places or attack other NATO countries especially, we now understand the indicators of compromise. We've got their tools, their tactics, you know, and so we're able to develop countermeasures to be able to scan for that happening. So now flash to bang is not years and months. It's now, you know, weeks, a, a couple days. That's one of the reasons why I think they're holding on to their big old tools because this is foreshadowing what I think 
is a coming Cold War with Russia in cyberspace. Back on February 26th, the Deputy Secretary of NATO came out and he said they consider cyber to be an operational domain and they say a massive cyber attack, now the key word is massive, a massive cyber attack will invoke Article 5 of the NATO doctrine. I think it's actually called the Washington Treaty. Everybody's now experts on NATO and Article 5, but it would trigger a Article 5 response. So here's the dirty little secret, and this is the reason I'm tying all this together. Russia is a tier one adversary from an offensive capability, but I describe Russia and, and China as well too. They're tier one adversaries, but I describe them as M&Ms. They're hard and crunchy on the outside, but they're soft and chewy on the inside with a big nut right in the middle. Xi Jinping and Putin. They're, you know, especially Putin right now. But they, um, they have a worry and there is a very real problem for them. And here's, here's the thing that ties this together. I was talking to a friend of mine that I used to do a lot of news segments with when she was a reporter and hosted her own show on Fox News generally. We're working on a project. And I was telling her about this. I said, as a reporter, as somebody in the news, if the WhiteHouse.gov site had gone down for a couple hours, how newsworthy would that have been? She said, oh, you know, we would have mentioned something. What about if it was two days? Definitely that gets people attention. What if it was nearly two weeks? That's huge because that gives you an indication is that if you cannot keep your website up and running, how do the American people trust you then to defend us against these cyber attacks? So Anonymous says, hey, we're going to get involved in this. We're now going to become part of the uh, Ukraine resistance, just like in World War II, the Dutch resistance, the French resistance. We're going to be part of the resistance. We're going to launch some attacks. They launched a denial of service attack against Kremlin.ru. I think for 11, it took over 11 days before it could actually fully function again. So, Kim, the, the reason I say that is you start tying this all together. They've got issues with trying to launch some of their major weapons because, A, we'll get a hold of them. We'll be able to understand what it is they're doing. Uh, B, um, they've got to be careful because if they invite a response because of if NATO determines it to be a massive attack, then they get hammered by, I think it's 36 nations. So I don't think they want that. But I think the third thing is they're holding a lot of this in reserve for this coming Cold War. So Russia is strategically better positioned from a strategic standpoint than they are a tactical standpoint right now in cyberspace. So kind of a long way around. But if you put all of these things together, you start getting a reason why they're not launching a lot of this stuff in Ukraine right now. Well, before we go on to the next uh, question, let me just do a quick shout out to some of our listeners that are in the chat box. Um, uh, Spencer, thanks for being here. Gresham, yeah, we don't know what that background noise is. Um, but Jonathan Kimmett says he doesn't hear anything. Um, and there was Vashni. Thanks, everyone. We love that you come tune in every day. But Jonathan has a question for you. He is the CISO over at the University of Tulsa. He said, do you believe that cyber disinformation as a tactic is being used? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that you saw that just came out in a form of cyber, uh, and this is something I actually wrote about in 2018 when I was writing for The Hill, um, deep fake videos. Deep fake, the, the first one of Vladimir, of Voldemir, Zelensky, got to be careful, there's Vladimir and Voldemir. So Voldemir Zelensky came out where he was saying that, hey, you know, just, you know, we're going to surrender, everybody quit fighting and doing stuff. Now, they were able to determine that as a piece of, manipulative, you know, it's it's basically it's malign influence, it's it's deceptive, it's offensive uh, in the sense is that it's trying to get you to stop doing something. People say, well, it's a fake. Everybody knows it's a fake. But we've got to put that into context. It's not such the question that's it's a fake. 
uh, it's the question is that if you tell, you know, it's basically the whole thing is that the the old saying is like Mark Twain said, and it's based on some other stuff, but it, uh, the a lie makes it halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to lace up its boots. It doesn't matter that it's found out two hours later or two days later. If it has an impact and it stops somebody operationally from making a decision, and my thing was, imagine um, somebody's telling a, uh, it looks like a general, um, like in a U.S. Army command, saying, hey, guys, hold off on the attack. We're not going to do anything. And that gives the adversary enough time to launch a preemptive strike. Or you've got uh, somebody using deep fakes to threaten people to say, look, if you don't do this for us, we're going to kill your family. Well, it's a deep fake videos of the families. This is the stuff that concerns me. It doesn't. It only has to be good enough to achieve an intended result. And so this is the first of many things, I think, that are, are that are coming out right now. Uh, there's a, you know, Sun Tzu said uh, all warfare is deception, and so there will be deception in cyberspace. There will be deception through the use of deep fake videos. There will be deception on the battlefield itself, you know, looking like you're going to come one direction when you actually come the other. Uh, Normandy, the invasion uh, D-Day, was an absolute total deception. They thought we were going to uh, land at uh, uh, Pai de Calais, and we actually came in to Normandy. So uh, all warfare's deception came in, and to, and to his point, uh, Jonathan's point, by the way, my sister got uh, married in Tulsa in the Oral Roberts Towers back when it was called the Oral Roberts Towers, so I do have a uh, connection to Tulsa. But yeah, Kim, uh, this is we will. This is the first of many things we will see as they try new tactics. And some of these tactics don't have to be offensive; they can merely be deceptive and achieve an intended result. And while Kim's coming back, I see one more question here. To uh, how much? And uh, Spencer asks, how much do you think drones are being used in the war? Are they being used all the time? In fact, Spencer, I will tell you, thanks to Elon Musk and through Starlink, they're actually now able to use the Starlink network in order to do command and control of the drones so that they can drop these. You've got these kamikaze drones uh, that are that are basically bomb-laden, explosive-laden drones that are taking out tanks. You've got them doing reconnaissance. What they've got is they've got, uh, they're using uh, basically a spotter like they do with the sniper. You've got a spotter and you've got the actual sniper. So they have a scout drone that's going out, laying out the battlefield, and then they're bringing in the armed drone to come down and do that. And because they're able to use the Starlink terminals and get back up, uh, they're actually able to, this, this is what's interesting about this. And I say, that's why I caveated at the front. When I, when I start talking like this, I am not in any way diminishing from what's going on over there. Um, anybody who's been in war, anybody who's been in those kind of situations, nobody wants it. Um, but what's, what we're seeing here, it's the first, my friend, friend, Christopher Lockhead, great guy. You got to read his book, him and two other guys play bigger. He's a fabulous CMO. This is the first truly digital war. Zelensky is using digital. Putin is still analog. And part of that digital stuff is the use of uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, 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 Snapchat, whatever it is, the way he's communicating. He is, he is getting past all of the other stuff. And these drones are an example of it. Uh, they've got other types of things that they're doing. In fact, uh, to that point, because the Russians took out so much of the infrastructure, the cell tower infrastructure, and they're an analog type of army, their uh, secure communication system, I think it was called VAR, they couldn't operate anymore. So they had to go to unsecured communications. Those unsecured communications, the Ukrainian army was able to hone in on it. They've now killed a couple high-ranking generals and some battlefield commanders because they were able to zero in 
on the coordinates of those talking. So you've got drones being used out there. You've got social media is being used in a way that's never been done before. Zelensky, if this were an analog war, he would not have the ability to get his message out like the way he's doing now. So I think this is totally um, doing. And, you know, Spencer brings up a point too. Um, you know, I always thought you could use a jammer to take the drones out. Let me tell you, that would be the case, except for the fact is that Russia has these huge logistical problems. They have stalled. They're, uh, according to the intelligence reports you get, uh, and I've got a couple buddies inside DOD. They share non-classified information, but it's not the stuff that makes it out to the news. But they're stalled on a lot of fronts. Their supply lines suck. You've got the cyber partisans in Belarus that are working to take out uh, their, their railways because the railways are all automated. They're connected. And so the ability to interfere with those and keep those things back. Um, and Spencer talks about that's why they wanted tore uh, off the grid, absolutely tore the onion router network, which forms the backbone basically of the dark web. By the way, here's a, uh, here's a trivia question for everybody out there. Does everybody know who invented basically Tor? Does you know who the inventor of Tor was? We'll see that uh, if anybody can uh, come up with it because it, it may surprise you. I am back. Hiya. <laughs> Whatever that noise was, I got. This is just, uh, thank God you don't have to deal with this in national news. But go ahead. They're going to mute me. You keep talking. Yeah, no. So I was saying, uh, so Tor was invented by the Naval Research Laboratory. And the reason it was invented, exactly what Jonathan was um or Spencer was getting at, is so that you could have people communicate securely. Uh, people who were human rights activists, our military, our intelligence uh, people that are out in the field, our operatives that are out in the field, our uh, case officers with the CIA. It was designed to be to do that. And because it could not be, it was very difficult at that time, and even today, to track where it is because you've got so many entry and exit points. So he didn't want that kind of capability. Uh, as well, too. Yeah, the Navy, DOD, very good guys, absolutely. Naval Research Laboratories. I did a speech one time. I actually got to meet one of the guys who worked on tour. Uh, and it started about 96, I think it was, uh, with some of the work that they were doing. But best, but here, here's another piece of trivia. Had it not been for Bitcoin, uh, there would have not really been a good way to monetize the dark web as it is now. So Bitcoin came along and Silk Road and all that other good stuff, too. So um, so here's a good, another good question, too, from Jonathan. Being early in the use of cyber tactics in war, do you believe there will be a Geneva Convention-like result for cyber activities? There already is supposed to be some kind of agreement um, in terms of what you will attack and what you won't attack, but here's the problem. Any type of an agreement that, that is enforceable requires the moral leadership of that country to follow through on it, regardless of the impact. So if you agree to the Geneva Convention, if we agree that you do prisoners like this, in fact, one of the things I thought, this one of those things that um, is a gray area, and according to the Geneva Convention, you're not supposed to use gratuitous pictures of dead bodies or prisoners of wars, which I thought Ukraine was using effectively in one way too. They created um, a website uh, the, the URL just spaced out for a second, but they created a website where Russian families could go see if one of their loved ones was killed or captured. And so they say, you know, the Geneva Convention was supposed to prevent that. Geneva Convention prevents the use of cluster bombs. Uh, Geneva Convention, but again, if you illegally invade a country, you know, like Russia's doing right now, um, you probably aren't going to follow the Geneva Convention. So I would think that Will there be a Geneva Convention on the use of certain things? Like there should be. It should follow the same rules for kinetic activity. In other words, you don't, you don't target civilian populations. You don't target life safety things. 
but they're going to go after power. Again, I go back to they're going to go after power. They're going to go after water. They're going to take those two things out, and they're going to try and keep them. Uh, that, that's how you bring a nation to its knees. So I think that um, will there be? Yes. Uh, do I believe Russia or China will follow it? Absolutely not. So, Kim, I mean, there would be a uh, – here's another interesting thing, too. Would there be a, a – actually, you could have a cyber war crime charge – but it would be under the Geneva Convention. It would be under the International Criminal Court that would prosecute war crimes if, in fact, the use of cyber uh, violated the Geneva Convention and resulted in crimes against humanity or what they would consider to be war crimes. Well, I don't know if um, I'm having technical difficulties, but um, hopefully you can hear me loud and clear yep. now. Yep. So thanks for, uh, luckily I'm with a pro here that can pick up when we have technical issues, but you've had, uh, quite a, uh, lot of questions. Did you answer Jonathan's last question about, um, it being interesting? Yeah. And, and that is, you know, why now, why now is everyone talking about article five and why wasn't this planned prior to this Russian attack. I mean, because isn't there still a lot of question if it will become an Article 5, you know, violation if there's a cyber attack? So it goes back to the definition of uh, what what is the definition of massive as far as NATO is concerned. And quite frankly, it's whatever NATO says massive is. So that's why Russia, that's why I think Russia, from a strategic standpoint, a strategic adversary is much better suited than they are tactically in cyberspace because a tactical response that would be massive uh, would I think they would find they would have to be I think they would have to give a lot of ground but you would reach the point it's called the fallacy of the beard so uh, when I was in college I learned this in my logic class my philosophy class had a great pref professor we had these discussions so it's like what I have here not a bit I keep it kind of trim but what at what point does a hair constitute a beard exactly what hair constitutes a beard that's very subjective but from an objective standpoint we can finally go Yep, you've got a beard. I don't know what hair made it, but now you've got a beard. Well, what's massive? I don't know, but at some point we're going to sit back and we're going to go, that's a massive attack. We're responding. The problem in cyberspace, it's so subjective, it's very hard to describe what a massive attack is, but the use of nuclear weapons, use of chemical weapons, use of biological weapons, we've those are red lines. Those are things that are easy to say it's a red line. Uh, and so what, what it's going to be to invoke Article 5, that's going to be up to NATO to talk about. Uh, and we're talking about war crimes too. Jonathan asked, would it be against the leadership or the technician that ran the tool? Um, it could be against both. In fact, if you go back to the Nuremberg trials, you could not get out of being prosecuted for war crimes uh, and, and for the people who ran the concentration camps and killed over 6 million Jews. You don't get out of it by just simply say, I was following orders. Now, there were some people who received lesser penalties, but there were a lot of people that were shot or hanged because of these war crimes, simply saying I was following orders. Now, that's the problem now with cyberspace. All I did was I wrote one piece of code. I had no idea where it was going. I don't think we're going to go to that extent. I think what you do is you start at the top and you work your way down. So I think you would definitely go after, um, if that's the case, I could see the International Criminal Court bringing charges against Vladimir Putin. Then you go to the next level of leadership. You go to the generals. You'd go to the uh, FSB or the uh GRU, you know, the military is definitely involved in this, or the SVR, their intelligence organs, and look at what are those doing and go after the leadership there. So in, in situations like that, when you're prosecuting somebody, it's like going after drug cartels, you work your way up, you flip people to work your way up, but you're going after the head of the snake. So you're working your way down the organization. You want to take out the head of it 
and work your way down. Uh, you know, and actually, I, I, it was Russia, and it was, um, um, uh, I just spaced out his name. So, uh, no, it was uh, during the war, too. Um, Stalin said, if you want to uh, motivate the colonels, uh, you, you, if you want to mo motivate the troops, you shoot a few colonels. Khrushchev even said that, too. So um, there is a way to motivate people not to commit war crimes. And I think the thing you're seeing with this, not just on the battlefield, I think in cyberspace, we're seeing visible evidence of people saying, no, you've got uh, soldiers defecting. You've got people not following through on certain orders. So I think we will see some kind of uh, a thing like that that comes out. But what's interesting about this whole series of events is this is the first major conflict where we've seen the use of cyber be a component, a, you know, basically an operational component of the war planning. It's not just, you know, we did a little bit of that in the Gulf War. We did some of that. But, you know, when you're attacked, when you're going against somebody like, say, uh, ISIS, you know, or the Taliban, you don't have those same, they're not a nation state, you don't have the same kind of technical capabilities that a China or a Russia does, you know, or folks like that. Now, the other thing we have to worry about is Belarus. Will Belarus get involved? How will that complicate the issue uh, and, and everything that's connected? So, Kim, I mean, we could go a hundred different ways on this. Hopefully, I haven't taken it too far afield here. Well, I'm going to go a different way. So, um what lessons do you think we learned from the Estonia attack that, you know, what, what do you think? I mean, we, we've seen their president has been on the news talking about everything that happened to them with that Russia attack. Is there anything that we've learned from that? Yeah, we learned that um, you pick on a little country like that, they can actually become a huge pain in your ass. And now the Cyber Defense Center of Excellence is based where? It's based in Estonia. Estonia got religion. Estonia started saying, hey, look, we will never let this happen again. And so you now have somebody who's motivated to develop uh, a lot of new capabilities to become this uh, center of excellence for NATO. So you've got all of the people in there. You're bringing now uh, Ukraine in there. So the great thing about having Ukraine in there is you've got this feed now from the battlefield and in cyberspace bringing information back. So I think a bad thing that happened to Estonia was being attacked by Russia. Russia didn't game this out. I think they thought, just as this one, uh, and I've seen reports where everybody thought, Putin thought that they would cross the border, and in 24 hours everybody was saying, oh, you know, it's, it's rainbows and unicorns. We're glad you're here. They're going to surrender. Didn't happen that way. Uh, Estonia didn't walk away from this either. They, they said, look, uh, you, we may be small, but uh, you picked on the wrong dog for this fight, and we're going to do what we can. And f even for a small nation, I don't—I think they're under two million. Uh, they're punching well above their weight right now. Well, that's yeah, that's um, awesome, obviously. And what do you think that we, you know, back to what I was talking about earlier is the smaller businesses, or even the the midsize businesses, the people that don't have the resources, like you know, the huge, the huge global companies, what do you think that they should be or what are they doing to ensure, you know, they're ramping up their security? So let me preface that by saying the recent announcement that came out from the White House that's saying, look, the Russians are scanning our systems and you people should ramp up your security. That's a disservice. And, and I'm not, I, I do ones and zeros. I don't do R's and D's. It's a disservice for this reason, because there's a lot of people out there already struggling to keep up. It's not about ramping up. I mean, if you're not already where you need to be, I mean, it's it's like it's like being in Florida. Uh, the hurricanes are on the coast, and you're thinking, oh, maybe I should put shutters on my door. I need to wait for the government to tell me to put shutters on my door, have water, have a generator for backup, and do these other things. No, I don't need to be told that. What I do need 
is I need specific information. If there's something actionable, if there's something credible, I need to know that, but just don't give me this generic warning. I say that to say this part, which is most businesses don't overdo it. I mean, don't overthink it. We're not storming the beaches at Normandy here. This is the discussion I was having earlier. I was told you with Jenna Lee. I said, look, this is really about just, you're, you need to assess on a regular basis your readiness. Are, you know, and I'm looking at it from my standpoint. Um, you know, do I have, can I survive until services are reconstituted? Do I have a three to five to seven to 10 day supply of food? What about fuel? What about a generator? It doesn't matter if it's a cyber attack or whatever else, uh, whether it's a terrorist attack, the impact to me is the same. I lose power, I lose water. So small businesses, medium businesses should always constantly just be assessing their readiness. If we were to be hit with X, are we ready to respond? If not, why not? What do we need to fix? What's within our control? Um, do we have the budget? Can we invest in new technology? Can we do, you know, are there certain things that we can do constantly evolving, but to run around as Chicken Little saying the sky is falling, we got to get ready because we're going to be attacked by the Russians. It reminds me of a movie, Men in Black, if you guys have seen that with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, where Will Smith is brought into the command center. I think it's Rip Torn and they're in there and um, he says, there's these threats coming out. We're going to attack you. He said, are we under attack? He goes, son, we're always under attack. You know, we are always being scanned. We are always being uh, scanned by adversaries. They're always probing for weakness. None of that has stopped. So I think the mindset we need to have is, are we constantly prepared? You cannot stay at such a heightened state of alert for so long. I, I tell you that from military, from law enforcement days. You can only stay at a heightened state of alert for so long because fatigue sets in. Even in your teams, if you say, we got to ramp up, we're going to 24-7 operations, doubling the staff. We want everybody here. You're, everybody's working 12-hour shifts now when you used to be working eight. That doesn't last very long if you're not prepared for it, if you haven't, if you haven't done this. So all these businesses need to do is just, it's the fundamentals, you know, making sure stuff's up to date, making sure uh, you're running the latest versions, especially if you're firmware too. Don't forget those types of things. You know, um, are, are there up? Here's the other thing too, Kim. Uh, when I used to be, I was the head of, uh, I was global industry solution manager for public safety and homeland security at Cisco uh, for several years. And so I was working with governments and with uh, other partners building solutions. I can't tell you how many times I went in and people did not realize. Uh, sometimes the account managers neglected to tell the customers they had additional capability that they never switched on. Sometimes you got to go back and do an inventory of what's already in your backyard. Go into your go into your backpack and see, have I already got the supplies there? Have I already got the capability there? That's one of the first things I would do is take inventory, take stock. Um, don't overthink the problem. Just constantly assess your readiness. Make sure that as even as a person that you can operate, how does your business operate? I, and I'll give you a Will Crick story on this too. Um, I get a call two days ago from my daughter. She's uh, killing it at this uh, company called Employee Navigator. She, they, do, they do healthcare brokerage. She calls me, she says, Dad, is there a cyber attack? I said, no, not that I know of. Well, because all of our internet is down at where she works at over in Maryland. And one of my first thought was, okay, just let's let's troubleshoot this for a minute. Uh, who else is out? Only a couple people. Let's go to Down Detector, a couple other resources. Do you see anything there? No. Well, it turns out it was an accident. Something They're doing construction not too far from there, I believe. Somebody hit it. But my point was to them is, what is your what is your sense of readiness? Are you able to operate outside that office? We found this with COVID. We found this with other stuff. So it's just simply, can you operate regardless of the circumstances and continue to operate? Everybody plans for disasters. That's why they'll call it disaster plan. Nobody has a catastrophe plan. It's, it's very hard to plan for catastrophes. But disaster planning is nothing more than, have we thought through all of the things that 
as opposed to thinking about everything that could happen, do capability uh, planning. Don't plan, don't do scenario-based. Well, if we get attacked by ransomware, what do we do here? If we get, instead, understand your capabilities. What capabilities do we have? And then regardless of what happens, how would we apply our known set of capabilities to solve an attack like this? If we get breached, what would we do here? Too many people do scenario-based planning as opposed to capabilities-based planning. You go to war with what you have. If I've got a certain rucksack full of capabilities, then I need to have, uh, I need to understand what I'm going to do now. It's interesting what just came out from the White House, and I was listening. Of course, I'm a news person. I'm always listening to the news, and they were talking this morning. Are people going to start running out and buying out all the food and the water? Because, you know, we have had kind of a little bit of a scare tactic. But I kind of relate it to when the whole storm happened in Texas mm -hmm. and all those people were caught off guard. Back then I was like, I better be prepared with water, wood, you know, food, which I'm probably not as much as I should. I was back then because I was a little nervous at the moment that I better be prepared. So is it, you know, I mean, it, I kind of guess it, it goes right with what you're saying. You should be prepared before, you know, you start, you know, freaking out because you don't you're not ready for what's going to come but again is there a lot of what's your thoughts on you know living in a world by throwing fear out there that's like the whole toilet paper thing with covid you know all of a sudden everybody was out of toilet paper well i'll give you here's here's a real world example um go back to the colonial pipeline hack and how people reacted to that. I live on the East Coast. And uh, Jonathan, I see your question there. I'll get to that in a second uh, about uh, cyber insurance. Um, see the Colonial Pipeline hack. Look at how people responded to a perceived shortage of fuel. There was no shortage of fuel. There was no, there was, we were, we did not lose any fuel. Nothing disappeared. It was just a perceived shortage because the administrative systems, the ability to distribute it were impacted for a few days. But we had people running out putting gas in, in plastic bags, to your point. Name me one symptom of COVID that caused me to have to hoard toilet paper. There no symptom of COVID required me to hoard toilet paper. But yet we got this cognitive bias basically in our mind that says we have to do something. This, this group mentality, this mob mentality kicked in and we went out and did it. And that is my, one of my biggest concerns if we have something really impactful hit us from a cyber standpoint or even a weather standpoint, is how will people react to that, to what is perceived as opposed to what is real? Because if you perceive it to be real, in your dreams, if you think you're falling, it feels like you're falling. You know, So what is perceived as real? I think it all goes back to is that if you uh, plan, if you just constantly assess your readiness, if you say no matter what happens, we're going to be prepared to respond with the capabilities that we have. I think you're better off. I just think it's a disservice to spread fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And look, I used to be in the consulting business too when I got out of law enforcement. Was it Unisys? Was it Bearing Point? Uh, you know, they say good consultants spread FUD. I think that's a disservice. I think what you have to do is walk people through the realities. You take the world as you find it, not as you wish it was. So the world as we find it right now. If you're waiting for the government to come rescue you, you are in a bad position. The government, if something really bad happens, like when that weather you talked about, Kim, in Texas, the government does not have the capability to respond to everyone. They can respond to anyone. They just cannot respond to everyone. So what is your plan to survive and to be able to continue to operate until services get reconstituted, until services get restored? We ought to be having more of that mentality, and it ought to be as— um, I, my plans do not depend upon the government doing something in 24 hours. I expect that I will have to go 72 to 96 
um, you know, or beyond that. I will have to go five to seven days on my own in order to be able to operate. So um, I, I just think it's more of we got to get back to the way they used to have to think. Imagine how tough it was living out on the prairies that came from Kansas. You know, what was it like back there in the 1860s, 1870s, where it was days between seeing somebody or took you a long time to go into town? Hey, real quick, um, let me answer Jonathan's question. We're already seeing he said he would expect that any cyber attacks at the moment will not be covered by cyber insurance. Yeah, there's things like force majeure. There's things that they may invoke if it's an act of war, act of terrorism. But I see cyber insurance already taking a hit because of ransomware. I mean, you saw, um, again, i trying to remember the name over in France. They quit insuring those attacks. They said, sorry, we cannot, we cannot from a, um, uh, a risk management point, um, we cannot, in our actuarial point, we cannot quantify the risk effectively from a business standpoint to where we can charge the right kind of premiums in order to insure the risk. So you're already seeing cyber insurance uh, going away. Now, will there be a government program in case something like that happens? Here's an interesting point, too. Uh, I have a buddy of mine, uh, him and I, uh, Steve Murphy, if you've ever watched Narcos on Netflix, uh, he was one of the two DEA agents that helped bring down Pablo. We have a podcast called Game of Crimes. We're both law enforcement guys, so we do this, but one of the people I interviewed was Ed Davis, a buddy of mine. He's the commissioner at the time of the Boston Police Department when the Boston Marathon bombing happened. There was a reason they did not call it a terrorist attack at that point, because calling it a terrorist attack could have prevented small businesses from getting the assistance they needed because there were terrorism-related clauses in insurance policies that would have prevented the payout in case it was terrorism-related. So exactly to your point, I think... Uh, uh, Jonathan, I think that we have to be very careful. Uh, and of the way that I think this this Ukraine war will also create a new way of looking at how we insure things, right? Because now you've got the physical and the logical world. You've got the cyber world. You've got the analog world. If I damage a building and it damages the other capability, is is it is that the attack on the building? If it's the proximate cause of the damage to the network, and now I say that is that a cyber attack? Is a physical attack different than a cyber attack, even though the network goes down in one instance? It's a building. A building just exploded because of a gas line leak. Those are things that have happened, right? That would be covered under insurance. But the same amount of damage, the same effect, because a bomb drops, we should treat that differently. So th that's one of the biggest questions uh, that are out there. And uh, Mike Davis talked about, I agree, consequence-based risk management, not just chase threats. You can, if you chase threats, you're like a dog chasing your tail. You're going to be spinning in circles. You're going to have a lot of motion, but you're never going to get anywhere. We really got to get back to uh, what, what are the consequences that our businesses face, and let's address those things. You can't do this what-if stuff. Well, what if this happens, and what if this happens? I have a saying, and I won't use the uh, French version of it, but what if worms have machine guns? Birds wouldn't F with them, right? You could what-if all you want. You just got to get down to the reality of it. And then um, Jonathan also asks, he says he agrees about the fear tactic, the dangers of knee-jerk reaction, but he'd love to people for people to see a cyber issue in the news, and then they go change the password, set up MFA with the same fever they purchased toilet paper and milk. Amen, brother. If we could only get people to take that as seriously, you know what we ought to do? We ought to say the password on your toilet paper roll has been compromised. We need to change your password. But that's the other thing, too. Um, it's How many of you, here's the other thing, too. For you folks that are on Facebook uh, or even LinkedIn, how many times people say, your account's been hacked. You got to go change your, your password. No, my account has not been hacked. Somebody just impersonated me. 
I've got my settings, privacy settings on Facebook locked down. That's why somebody said, hey, there's somebody's trying to impersonate you. Notice I don't have my profile pic because I have it locked down. Unless you send me an invite and I accept it, then you get to see a lot of the stuff. Same thing on LinkedIn. There are a lot of false uh, profiles on LinkedIn. And it doesn't mean that I need to go change my password. So making sure we have the right context for it. But I would say back, you know what we ought to do? This goes back to teaching kids in schools. We ought to go back and teach kids in school right from the start, the same way my kids, when they were growing up, they had to grow up with a trooper dad, you know, back there, and a police detective. We wore our seatbelts everywhere we go. That's the only thing they knew. We had seatbelts everywhere we go. We ought to be doing the same thing in schools. There ought to be a standard curriculum about how to compute safely, about what, what you need to do with passwords, multi-factor authentication. The government's finally doing it, but it ought to be, we ought to get to the point to where just like uh, uh, intermittent or like uh, anti-lock brakes, uh, seat belts, airbags are mandatory safety equipment. We ought to build in mandatory safety on all sites. Uh, they have to be able to enable multi-factor authentication. Now, it doesn't stop everything, but what we want to do is we want to exact the price on the attackers. This is an economic issue. We want to make them pay such a price. It's easier to an attack account with just a username and a password than it is a username, password, and multi-factor authentication. We saw that uh, in the um, SolarWinds. We saw that in the Office 365 approach where they were able to actually go in and hijack uh, the cookie that set the secure token to see whether or not you needed to use MFA or not. So um, all of those things, uh, we should be looking at this in terms of how we respond to that. But the biggest thing we have to do is start tamping down the FUD, start, start tamping down the misinformation. And simply, I think it's more reasonable to say, look, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. I just went out to a pistol course over the weekend, former Special Forces guys. You know, we're, we're learning uh, different tactics, shooting from behind barricades. But the biggest thing is the fastest draw in the Old West doesn't win. It's the smoothest draw. It's the most accurate draw. That's what wins. So we've got to start quit telling people, you got to do something, run around, whatever it is, just do something. No, let's be deliberate. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Let's be deliberate about the things we do. Let's secure the things we ought to secure. Let's fix the things that needs to be fixed, but let's not, let's not cause chaos and panic in everybody. Because if I look, if your leader is chaotic, if your leader's giving you bad information, uh, you know, they usually set the tone down. So Kim, I mean, like, again, we could go, you know, probably 10 different directions with this. Same thing with Jonathan, 100% on the cyber school safety programs. He's working on that. Rock on, my man. Yeah, Jonathan's pretty awesome. He uh, he has his SOC operations ran by the students at uh, University of Tulsa. So that's pretty cool. He, he uh, co-hosts the show sometimes for me. So Jonathan's doing all kinds of great things out there. But I think you're right. I think it's just going back to the basics and making sure, you know, you have a backup plan. Like I did not have a backup plan when my mic just went out on this show. My backup plan was you covered for me. But I think it is just simple stuff that, you know, hopefully these messages that, you know, cybersecurity, it, it is in the forefront of the news right now. And I was, I had a guest on last weekend, you know, it's just our world. It seems like we're talking about cybersecurity. And when people ask me, what do you do? Usually the reaction is, oh, you must be really busy. They don't, they don't really care what I do. You know, they don't really care about cybersecurity, you know, until something happens to them. Yeah, speaking of backup plans, I just thought I'd give a quick example. You're right, you have to have backup plans. So on a lot of my accounts that are multi-factor, I can get it through. I have the recovery code saved. I have the authenticator app. Um, I can get it by SMS. And then 
The other thing too, and many of you guys have used things like this, the security keys, the UB keys. You know, um, I, I'm a, you know, look, basically I'm a solo operator. I can't afford to get locked out of stuff. I need to have multiple ways to get into it. But what this is, this is a Swiss toolkit for me. I simply look at it, I go, okay, my regular way didn't work. What's my plan B? That didn't work. Okay, no problem. What's my plan C? There's a reason there are 26 letters in the alphabet. That's how many plans, you know, you could literally have. You don't need that many. Most of the time you can get into it, but if, fail, if, if all else doesn't work, I can get in because I've got something that I control physically here at home. You know, in most of these accounts, they accept the security key, and I can do that. So the, the fun part is, is you know, um, you know, really what it is, there's, there's, it's actually kind of fun to do the planning because you do have to think, you know, what are the different ways you can do this? But I quit doing scenario planning, and I started saying, if I opened up my MacGyver belt, if I opened up my tool belt, and I saw what I had, what are the different things I could do? MacGyver was the perfect... Uh, capabilities place planner. He, that's the one you wanted. Didn't matter the scenario. He would simply look around and say, what do we have? What can I use? And then let's build something from there. It wasn't like, well, hey, hold on. I'm going to run to Home Depot. I got to get four things. Sorry, pal. Can't afford you. Got, you got to solve this problem right in in, uh, in under an hour. So what did MacGyver do? He used what it was ever around him. So, um, And actually, here there's a great stat too by Mike Davis. Microsoft states that any form of MFA reduces automated threats by 99.9%. I don't know if, I, I don't know the accuracy of that stat. Of course, it's Microsoft and it's marketing. I got good buddies at Microsoft and run their criminal justice stuff. But but that's the point. Automated threats reduces 99.9% of those because guess what? I, I, I think it's still the same number. The number of default passwords in the world that come out from manufacturers, that's why uh, the... Uh, 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 denial of service attack, the one that was launched, the biggest one that we ever had on record, that was basically done by attacking uh, network devices, uh, IoT devices, and what it was able to do was go in and automate and just simply scan for those 67 passwords, and it was one of them, brute force them. So yeah, there, it reduces the automated threats. And look, there's a site out there, many of you guys have seen it, maybe it's called Two-Factor Auth, T-W-O-F-A-C-T-O-R-A-U-T-H.org factorauth.org That gives you, uh, and they've done a really good job of cataloging financial sites, social media sites, whatever it is, all of the ones that support two-factor and multi-factor authentication. And then, better yet, they put the link in there to click to tell you where to go in order to secure um, your account. So I, I just think that there's a lot of good stuff out there that is still to be done. But again, biggest piece of advice I can give you, take a breath slow down. We're not storming the beaches at Normandy. Have a plan. Be deliberate about it. Constantly assess your readiness. And all you have to do is be prepared. Look, when I was a cop, when I was a state trooper, I'd be out 20 miles from my nearest backup. Literally, that's all. I had, I had to handle whatever was out there with what I had on my belt. And that's why we were taught many different things from defense tactics. You got to learn when to back off. Uh, we didn't even have handheld radios at the time. So I had to be able to get back to my car, get to the mic, Whatever it was, you just had you had to figure it out. There was no cavalry coming over the hill in the next thirty seconds. So, with the everything that's happened in Ukraine, do you think that they were prepared as far as financially and the banks and you know I I don't you know this is just my take. I don't believe they thought it was going to happen. You know, so how prepared should one be when it comes to financial and you know? just making sure if something were going to happen, you're going to be financially okay. Yeah, again, uh, 
I don't want a Monday morning quarterback, but if I'm watching the news and I'm watching what people say, to your point exactly, Kim, they didn't think it was going to happen. Wrong attitude to have. What what they should have been saying is that, look, we hope they don't invade, but if they do, these are the things we need to be doing now. You need to be doing X, Y, and Z. We hope it doesn't happen, but if it does, you need to be doing X, Y, and Z. That should have been the message every single day because people did get caught um, without access to their the banking stuff. They, they got caught without the required, I think, number of uh, days so they, they could survive. I mean, when you see the news media over there and they're doing these reports of the people, they're without power, they're without water, they're trying to figure out where are we going to get water from. I mean, I think, again... I just want to stop there. I don't, I don't want to Monday morning quarterback anything. All I can go off is the news reports. But what I saw in the news was not the attitude I wish they would have had, which is, hey, look, if they come, they come. I personally can't stop that. But what I can do is I can be prepared is if they come. And we're going to be prepared. We are not going to be – we are going to do what we can to be the least amount of burden on our government that we can. And I think it goes back to the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule. A lot of times, 20% of the people consume 80% of the government resources. I don't want to be one of the 20%. I want to be one of the people that says, I'm going to make it easy for the government to take their time and attention and focus on stuff. I'm going to be self-reliant, self-sufficient. But if there's one thing I would have changed, it definitely would have been the messaging and the state of preparation prior to the invasion. So what do you think? We're almost um, up on the hour here. Um, any foresight of or any foresight advice? I know you've been giving advice of what we might be seeing in the next, you know, weeks, days, minutes. Yeah. Um, look, I don't. None. None of us can control what Russia will do. None of us can control what China will do, uh, or Iran, or North Korea. We cannot control that. What we can control is our responses to it. What we can control is our preparation for it. So, I simply go back to that. It's I would prepare your business the same way you would prepare your home. At home, can you operate for as long as your business can? And if one of them can operate longer than the other, you've got a problem because one of them is going to suffer. If you if your business can go for five to seven days, but you only have two hours of food, something's going to suffer, right? So you've got to look at your level of preparation to say, will I be able to focus my time and attention on making sure the family's safe at the same time reconstituting business services over here. What you want to do is lessen the number of things you have to worry about controlling um, and you simplify your battle plan. You know, if I can say it that way, simplify your battle plan. You know, right? You, you want it. Uh, Eisenhower had a great line too. Uh, Eisenhower, by the way, born in Abilene, Kansas, Kansas farm boy like me. Uh, actually, Abilene is six miles from my little boyhood hometown of Chapman, Kansas. Uh, but Eisenhower had a, he was not a, Eisenhower was not a good, regular soldier like he was you know if he was he the best shot no i mean was he the best at pt absolutely not eisenhower was a strategist but he said plans are worthless but planning is invaluable if you have a plan on your shelf and it's sitting there it's worthless that plan is worthless it's usually dated but you, you don't have to overdo it in other words you don't want that fatigue but simply every 30 days going hey look um, has the state of the world changed is there anything in our plan we ought to think about we ought to change. You don't have to have a huge planning meeting, but simply knowing your major things that you're looking at. For example, if there's a new type of threat, you're probably already addressing that. So the question is, are do, do we have a good visibility of what our enterprise is like? Do we have, should we be thinking about if an event were to happen, what things could we shut off immediately so we don't have to worry about those and still be able to maintain and operate over here? 
Uh, the smaller of a business you are, the more latitude you have. The bigger of a business, it's very difficult to do those things. So just knowing what things, um, and it's like a fire. It's like having a fire department. Look, I got to tell you, if you live 50 miles from the nearest fire department, what you better do is worry about which buildings do you want them to save because they cannot save all five buildings. They can only save one by the time they get there, and it may only be the foundation. So being able to survive, being able to have the right things in place so that you can survive long enough for, for help to get there uh, is really it's the basis of all planning. You know, a, a fire safe is not designed to survive indefinitely. It's designed to survive long enough for the fire department to get there and put it out so that it can recover black boxes and airplanes. As we saw what happened in China, that plane that uh, incredibly, I mean, just uh, horrendous dives 29,000 feet in 90 seconds, you know, the black boxes still survived that. So they they did their job, you know, so just make sure things are there to do their job and sometimes good enough is good enough. Don't over-prepare. Don't overthink the problem. You know, um, good enough is good enough. And then give yourself the flexibility to operate and make different decisions based on new information that comes in. Don't have, don't have such a dogma that says, well, we have to do it this way. No. You do it that way until circumstances change to where we say, let's rethink. Should we be doing this? Should we be doing this? Give yourself the flexibility to change your planning on a constant basis. And Morgan, if people want to, you know, hear more about your opinions, your views, everything you're doing, we have about two minutes. Um, what's coming up next for you? Where can people find you? And um, well, again, I'm Chief Security Advisor for SentinelOne.com. Somebody said, uh, "Good, uh, good acquisition." We agree. Uh, Ativo Identity is the next area. So just you know, SentinelOne.com. I'll be on the news. I, I'm I'm non-denominational. I've done many different things. Um, uh, so, uh, and then at Morgan Wright underscore us, uh, is where I do some of the stuff on Twitter, but, uh, Hey, look, uh, just Google me. If you can't find me, you're not trying hard enough. And I guess the, uh, last thing is, is there any, I know you gave us a lot of advice, but in a couple of words, one thing someone can do different today that they weren't doing yesterday. Uh, don't sweat the small stuff. Um, keep the main thing, the main thing. Don't sweat the small stuff big picture and last piece of advice you take the world as you find it not as you wish it was don't do this what if well why did he do this well if it only he'd done this doesn't matter get your plan work your plan assess your plan uh, revise your plan as needed and if people want to stay away from cybersecurity for a minute you want to tell someone in like 20 seconds about your podcast you're doing right now GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We interview the people who have actually lived it. We don't do murder porn. We don't do uh, talk about murder cases. Uh, we talk about the people. We had George Young. We've had Dave Reichert, Green River Killer, Ed Davis, Boston Police Commissioner. We've had money launderers. Um, you name it. We talk to the people who are the real deal, the people who have actually lived the life, who lived the stories, and we help them tell their stories. GameofCrimesPodcast.com. You can find us on Apple, Game of Crimes. Okay, Morgan Wright, Chief Security Advisor for Sentinel One. Thank you so much, Morgan, for spending the last hour with us. Thanks for uh, helping me out with my technical issue. Thank you, everyone, for joining another episode of And Security for All. I hope you guys all have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay secure, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M. 
to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? 